This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here today, we're going to talk about seller deliverables. And really what these are, these are the due diligence items you request from the seller. Oftentimes, people will ask me, like, what do I need to look at? What do I need for underwriting? How do I know if my pricing is right? How do I know if this is a safe deal? All those sort of things that you ask you ask, and you, under, you kind of get to understand during due diligence. And getting a quality list of seller deliverables will really help you get there. And these things are designed a lot to help you undercover, uncover problems, to help you save money, not having to order reports that they've already got to help you understand the property, and then just down the road to have more resources available for when they may or may not come up. Also, there's this is just really a fact-finding mission as well. and gives you a chance to uh, really vet whatever the seller tells you to see if it's true or not. And then uh, some of these things will be in the, in the purchase contract, will be seller reps and warranties that these things are accurate, that these things are, are valid. And there's some other action steps associated with them. So ultimately, you know, there's a number of things that go into due diligence. I've talked about the 10 landmines you need to avoid during due diligence. I'll also talk in another podcast about key steps and processes to go through during your due diligence. Well, one of the due diligence things you're going to do is review the seller deliverables. So you may ask, when do I ask for the seller deliverables? And that can be a little subjective. Um, sometimes I will put it in the purchase contract as an exhibit listing all these things. If I'm buying from a professional seller, that's what I'll do. And whenever I sell, I have them ready to go when I'm, when I'm negotiating the LOI so that as soon as I get the contract, I just drop them on the buyer's lap. And what that does is it puts the buyer on the clock because a lot of times in the contract and in my purchase contract, the shot clock, if you will, on your inspection period, your due diligence period, it doesn't start until certain things are delivered by the seller. Typically, that's going to be the title commitment and the seller deliverable list. Sometimes it's going to also include a survey, but surveys can be out of your, out of your hands because you got to hire a third party. So you could argue it's not fair to tie the timeline to that. If you're the buyer, you want to get it that way. If you're the seller, you don't. But what I try to do is have all these documents ready, typically in a Dropbox file, and then I send a letter as soon as I, as soon as I deliver them, saying you have receipt of the deliverables. You know, five minutes after contract execution, please review for compliance and completion and accuracy in the first 48 hours. Um, otherwise, I'm going to deem that you've accepted them. And then a the best practice would be you know, getting them to sign off that I've accepted that they've been received. Doesn't mean that they agree with all the findings. Doesn't mean that they're going to close or waive any, due deal, waive any inspection provisions. But it means that they're agreeing that you've delivered everything. So with the game of the... So I'm a professional seller. So if I sell... I don't care if you ask for all this stuff. If I buy from a professional seller, I'm going to ask for all this stuff. I'll just put it in the purchase contract. If I'm going to buy from Mon Pa, it's really a gut call. And a lot of times I won't put it in the purchase contract because it offends them sometimes and or it overwhelms them. Because as I'll go through this list here in a minute, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff on here. And some of the stuff, 
some of the requested items take some effort, some work to compile. And some of it's kind of personal, like tax returns. You know, I think it's important to see your tax returns. Um, and certain times it's not even available. So I always try to, you know, comfort, if you will, the seller. Look, if you don't have it, that's fine. But you need to represent and warrant that. You need to tell me that. And in my contract, I've got some survivability provisions and I've got some representations and warranties. And if you deceive me and I later find out about it, I have the right to sue you at law or equity. Meaning every day, if you look in the mirror and look over your shoulder, is today the day the FERD comes to get me for lying. So I just want to say, don't lie. Tell me what you got. And that's what this list is about. Um... The cat, the, the the kind of the risk, I guess, if you don't put it in the contract, is after you execute the contract, when you make these requests during your due diligence period, the seller might say no, and you don't have a contractual right. You could put some vague statement in your contract like, seller must deliver everything I ask. Well, good luck soon on that provision. Now, you could say best efforts or commercially reasonable, that kind of thing, but that's subjective as well. So really, your muscle, if you will... If the seller does not comply, is to say, well, I'm going to terminate. And sometimes the sellers will cave and comply. When you t- when you threaten to terminate, sometimes it'll piss them off. Sometimes they'll say, go for it. I closed a deal one time. I didn't even have a contract, frankly. I had my binding letter of intent and took it to the title company, and the guy never delivered all the seller deliverables. I got enough of them, and I got enough of the third-party reports. I got the survey. I got the phase one environmental I, they knew the market was good. I got my appraisal. I got my loan commitment. All those things. So I closed the property despite never receiving a number of items on this list. So technically, my my shot clock on my due diligence was on day zero. And I even have closed a contract at a title company with an LOI. And as long as your bank's cool with it, and you know, an LOI, a contract, you could have a contract on a napkin, really, and you could have a very brief contract, as you know from my earlier po- earlier podcast. I have a more robust contract, and I recommend that for you. And I have a binding letter of intent, which I recommend as well. But this seller deliverable list is important, and it really is a kind of a launching pad. It gives you, gives you something to work on, you know, right after you done your contract, so you don't get stale. You don't move on to something else and forget and start eating clock. And it's, it's, I always think it's good to, you know, assure the seller, like, hey, I'm looking, I'm going to work on your property. I'm not in the business of tying properties up and, and farting around. I'm going to work on it. By work on it, I mean I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to kick some tires, turn over some rocks, and if everything works out like you say, sir or ma'am, well then, why would I not buy it? That's what I'm here to do. This is not, I'm not doing this for practice anymore. Okay, this is designed to get me to closing, to a win-win. Okay, so I'm just going to jump in the list. Some of these can be pretty self-explanatory. Some of them I'm going to have minimal commentary for. But this is my, I say, my due diligence list, my seller deliverable list that I will either put in the contract or request immediately after getting the contract or shortly thereafter. First, number one, environmental reports of any kind conducted on the property. This is important because if they've already got a bad environmental, then you can kind of save time and bail. Or if they've got a good environmental or a partial environmental study, why go get bids from 10 different companies? First, call the company that already did it and say, hey, how about I pay you 250 bucks to update your report as opposed to getting bids and paying anywhere from two to 5000 for a phase one environmental. Number two, copies of any existing surveys or plat. This can save money in the same way, but also it's possible the survey is sufficient. You don't have to order a new one. And, it's, and it also gives you more information. The survey could be very detailed. A, lot, a good survey, an Alta survey with lots of table A items, that will 
uh, that'll show easements and things like that that'll give you a lot of information about the property. Okay, number four, any as-built drawings or construction drawings and infrastructure. This is one that I feel like is more helpful down the road. It's not as much during due diligence, but it's more like, hey, three years later when I've got to find a water main or, you know, submeet or something or shut off the water valves to, you know, look for a leak or something. It'd be nice to have that. And it's kind of a sidebar. It's always good to keep a strong relationship with the seller especially seller finance deals, of course, but even on a cash deal, the first park I bought, you know, I didn't know all this stuff. Nobody gave me this list. I didn't know all this stuff when I was doing, and I wasn't even an attorney yet either, so I mean, it was, um, I was kind of fishing in the dark, if you will, and I remember my dad and I, we had a water problem, and we had to turn, we had to find the water main to shut off the water of the whole park to look for this big leak and excavate, and we looked, and we looked, and we could not find the water main. We couldn't figure out where to shut it off. So what are we going to do? We're going to call the city and shut it off down the street and, you know, repipe and put in new shutoff valves and dig up main lines and, and get city permits for it and inspections. And we could have been out of water for days. It would cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, luckily, we still had a good relationship to seller. And we were reasonable during our due diligence, and partially because we were uh, more ignorant than we are today. But we were, we were all around good guys, and we called and said, hey, can you help us out? And sure enough, the guy said, oh, the water main, you'll never find it. You know on the east side of the property, there's that tree line? Yeah. Over the, past the tree line, there's a creek. Yeah, past the creek, there's another tree line. Yeah, then there's a cornfield. Yeah, that's the other guy's property. Yeah, for some reason, the city put the main line over there. you got to shut it off over there. We would have never found that. We would have never have. We would have, and we could have dug every inch of our property and been off by 200 feet across the creek, across the tree line. We'd have been screwed. So lesson learned: be nice to the seller. But also lesson learned: get copies of the as-built drawings. If they have them, great. They'll give them to you for free. Um, and if they have torn up or ripped up papers, at least you know the engineering firm that did it, and you can go back to them later. Okay. Next, copies of any easement agreements or amendments or deed restrictions. You know, title work should pull up and catch all this stuff, but sometimes it doesn't, so you might as well ask. Number six, copies of any permits, certificates of occupancy, or licenses, and the annual fees and renewal dates for each. These are all items you want to verify with the city, but sometimes the city personnel will forget one, and this will be like a cross-check. And it or just makes your life easier when asking for certain specific items with the city. City, state, other governmental agency. Number seven, copies of any leases, amendments, addendums, extensions, or revisions to the lease. Lots of times you don't get this. I mean, they just, ah, my leases are month to month. I haven't updated them in five years. And uh, people, I mean, I've bought parts where like, we know two or three of these names. They're from our hometown. They died. Okay, they don't still live here. And, you know, you try, but you at least eventually put those into the assignment of leases. And then if they're related to a park owned home, to a bill of sale. So try to get them. Um... Read them. Make sure they're verif- Make sure they're all the same template. If you, you know, if you know they're not, you got to read each template once. Uh, next, reports, tests, and readings, and compliance documentation for any infrastructure like sewer, water wells, things like that. Water plants, sewer plants, uh, lagoons. Get documentation on that. The next one, number nine. I ask for a copy of any appraisal on the property. This is one that people will push back on. I push back on them and sell them. Like it's not none of your business, right? And what they're trying to do is figure out how much you paid for it or how much, you know, you've increased the rent and all these other things to basically see if they can 
retrade down the road. They don't need my appraisal, but I always ask for it. I don't get it a lot of the time. And mom and pop don't even have appraisals sometimes, so um, it, but it does help sometimes with pricing. Number 10, a copy of their current insurance policy and binder showing the premiums and coverage. It's possible that their insurance guy is better than yours or cheaper than yours, so right there you get a free comp. But they also kind of get a better feel for what if there's any claim history, you can ask for a loss report so you'll know if there's been any claims previously because that could impact your insurance coverage. Number 11, a copy of any right of first refusal for any portion of the property. This is pretty atypical in a mobile home park, but I still ask for it. And if they have it, that's a big problem. And I make, it, I make sure in the contract that they wrap and warrant that they don't have that, but first right refusal. Number 12, copies of any property tax bills or assessments. I generally pull this myself in the county records, but they've got it handy. Let them do the work for you. And you, you use that to, you know, one, for prorations and closing, but two, to get, kind of estimate if your property taxes are going to increase based on the price you're paying and the prices on the books for. And doing three years' worth, that kind of shows the history as well. Number 13, letters of non-compliance from any government, governmental agencies. I've actually never received one of these, so they're either lying or they've been good boys and good girls. Number 14, copies of utility bills. This is pretty important. You know, there's copies of their water, sewer, trash, gas, electric, other. Especially, you want to look at their water bills compared to their collections to see if there's any leakage. And you want to see what their trash bill is. You want to get quotes for their trash bills. If they're paying gas or electric, that's pretty unusual. You want to see what it's for. I mean, you pay electric for streetlights, and you've you got to budget that. I mean, you're not going to be able to save any money in the streetlights that they are. And typically, I try to add streetlights. And, that, you know, sometimes it's per meter usage, but a lot of times streetlights are really just a fixed fee. So you better look at their bills, you can kind of get a feel for that. I ask for two years, but generally even six months is okay. Fifteen copies of all vendor contracts. Sixteen copies of all personnel contracts. You want to read those and make sure they don't automatically attach to you. And you've got to try to spit the hook on them if you can. And in your purchase contract, you want to make sure that all those contracts have to be, clo- have to be canceled immediately prior to closing. So you don't automatically have to inherit a bad contract. Speaking of vendor contracts, I almost never sign a trash contract. The trash companies, they're just, oh my gosh, they're the worst. And I've found that they continue to provide service that don't sign their contract. If they absolutely require it, I do minimum, I say the 30-day termination clause. And they say, we can't do it. Three years, three-year renewal, five years, all this crap. I say, I insist, I insist, I insist. And if they don't agree, I go to a different trash company. And I think like once they didn't cave. But for the most part, they'll cave on a month to month. But you can't get them to cave on a lot of other provisions. And it's just, oh, so one-sided and... I'll take advantage of you. So what I do sometimes, don't tell my trash company this, but what I do is I don't even change the trash service into my name. The bills come to the park for whatever reason sometimes. I just have get it set up on auto pay, and I just pay the bill. It's coming from a different account. I don't have a long-term contract, but then it's amazing. I can go from 20 to like 30, 40, 80 units in the park, and they just say, hey, can you bring me 10 more dumpsters? Sure. 10 more dumpsters? Sure. And... My bills have stayed the same for years. It's kind of crazy. But the, those contracts are so horrible that I just do whatever I can to not have to sign them. Number 17, the list and the contact information for all vendors and personnel. This can be helpful to kind of get a, the name and number of all the people who have already worked on these sewer lines, who already worked on these electric meters, who already mow the grass, who already have the snow contract. And you can get bids from them. And I try to get them to give me a kind of a, a grade, you know, A, B, C, D, F, G, that kind of stuff. You know, I guess I went too many there, but... You get the point. So you can kind of get their opinion of who's good and who's not. Number 18, certified rent roll. This is important, and this should be updated every month of due diligence and updated at closing. 
And this would include things like the unit number, the rental amount, move-in date, name and phone number, number of tenant, delinquency balance, security deposit amount. You might not get all that stuff. You at least need the name, the number, and the security deposit. Ideally, the delinquency balance. Uh, number 19, this is pretty subjective, but the list of five best and worst aspects of the property. Might as well get their, their opinion. And it kind of makes them feel warm and fuzzy, too. I get asked that question sometimes when I sell, and I'm kind of like, this is stupid, but I asked for it. You know, lots of people do it. You know, I didn't invent everything on this list. I've put together some, a couple here, a couple there from other people's lists and from deals I've seen. Number 20, copies of their bank statements. Some people are super anal about this, especially if uh, their lender requires it, but I've found sometimes it's worthless. I bought a park in Rancho, Illinois, and the guy was like 95 years old. He owned three mobile home parks and 75 rental houses. And all of them were in his personal name, and they were all in the same checking account. So what good would have looked? What good it would it have done for me to look at his bank statements? Oh, great. He's got a Netflix bill. That doesn't help me, right? You know, in theory, this helps you to see if the rent deposits are valid and kind of monitors expenses. I feel like most sellers, especially, I don't know, I don't want to pick on mom and pop, but most sellers are either inept or immoral, and they lie to you all the time. So I really don't trust a lot of stuff. You can you can rig your bank statements, right? I could start. I could drop my own cash to the bank account if I wanted to, and claim, look, people are paying. I mean, it would be a huge pain to do that, but people do that stuff. Okay, um, it happens sometimes. So I don't really trust the bank statements, but you might as well ask for them because maybe it helps, and maybe they're honest. I should be more optimistic. My wife tells me. Okay, number twenty-one. Copies of financial reports, the P and L, profit and loss, or balance sheet for two years. This is more important. Um, for banking than I think the bank statements for lending, lenders. I, I tend to ask for this and look at them and I review them. Sometimes it's garbage, it's back and happen, but a lot of times it's not. Nowadays, more and more companies have you know, rent manager or one of these other accounting programs, so it's, it tends to be more valuable, um, so I ask for it. And any professional operator is going to have this kind of stuff. Next is copies of tax returns, two years. This is sometimes is a big deal for mom and pop, so sometimes I don't ask for this, or I ask for it and I say, don't worry about that one. Because they, they've been cheating on their taxes, basically. You know, professional operators, I don't think, really ever cheat on their taxes. It's not, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze, as I like to say. But for mom and pa, they've been rolling the dice. And they're collecting cash and all this. And I've seen, like, they're paying for their kid's truck out of the account and all this kind of crap. You can ask for it. I generally don't die on that hill if they say no. And that's kind of all these things. There's, this is the wish list, but you can tell by my, you know, color commentary here which ones I think are, are crucial and which ones are not. Number 23, this one's important. The list of any capital expenditures and the amounts over the last five years and projected over the next two years. I think that's good to get a better feel for what they've spent money on. Uh, number 24, the list, list of and the age of any, of the type, sorry, the list, age, and type of material of all utilities and infrastructure. So, you know, obviously if it's like Orangeburg sewer, I hate it. But if it's, you know, Schedule 80 PVC and it's one year old, okay, that's good to know. And so on for the other infrastructure. Number 25 is related. Status of the utility system. What's the condition? Um, any deferred maintenance or infrastructure issues for the utility system or just a general park? And then also with that, the status of the utility system, meaning... Is it submetered? Is it private? You know, private water lines, public water lines. Does the tenant get the bill? Does the landlord get the bill? Who pays for it? Tenant, the landlord. Just kind of get a better feel. I mean, obviously, the, the goal would be, hey, city water, city sewer, direct bill to the tenant. You know, the worst would be 
private water, private sewer, not submetered, and paid by the landlord. And that impacts a number of things, including your expense ratio and your ultimate profitability. Next on the list, number 27, the date and the amount of the last three rent increases. And then ask them, any state or city-specific rent increase rules? I asked that one just thinking, just kind of curious more than anything, because I, I still go look that up myself. You know, what's the law say? But it's interesting to see, you know, what's the rent increase? Um, I had a deal where the rent had not increased since at least 2009. I bought this park in 2018. And that was that was the oldest lease that I could find, and like literally the same rental rate for nine years. So that just gives you some information. Some states, by the way, require you to disclose the prior years. You know, maybe one, two, three, five prior years of rent amounts, and the next one, two, three, five years of rent amounts on the lease. So that could be important to know as well. Number twenty-eight: the list of any personal property to be included in the sale. And twenty-nine related to that. List of any mobile homes including the sale. And I like to get the lot number, the size, the dimensions, the year, the make, the model, estimated value or insured value, and obviously the VIN as well. So all that's kind of important, but those, but this, the more detail you can get on the bill sale, the better. And then the last one of the you know 30 seller deliverables that I request would be a report of any criminal activity or problems over the last two years. And this one can kind of become Pandora's box. So I'll even sometimes ask, like, can you do it per tenant? Can you give it per tenant opinion? Um, which you probably really shouldn't do. I've never done it. I don't think I would do it. But, you know, I've had one lady like, oh, this guy, he's nice, but I think he has, you know, some, quote, guy friends over from time to time. And he bakes and he kind of sings and dances. I'm like, okay, she just said he's gay. Like, she was, that was like her report. It was like, Nothing related to his tenancy, you know, not like he's late payer or he has drugs or violence. Like, I think he's gay. Okay. Well, that was interesting. And they'll tell you, this guy's, this lady's got a, you know, new boyfriend or this lady's boyfriend's a jerk. Okay. What do we mean he's a jerk? Is he violent? Okay. I really try to stick with criminal activity, so I'm not really too nosy. And I don't want to get in sideways with any FHA laws or anything like that. I also fact check this myself. We call this police department and pull a police report for the entire park. The police typically will give you this. And generally for free, they sometimes want like a hundred bucks. They sometimes are annoying. You got to bug them like five times, but ultimately they'll give you a criminal activity report. So overall, I mean, as you can tell, that's a lot of information to ask for from a seller. Which, if your time line, you mean your shot clock on shot clock on the inspection period starts when you get this stuff, that's really good for you because you know I've gone months and months under due diligence and never been on day one because I've been waiting for these items. So when you're buying, this is helpful, but when you're negotiating pre-contract, you gotta make sure you don't scare away mom and pa because you've got this big daunting list and they're just like, oh, I don't wanna sell it to this guy. So all told, due diligence is crucial to buy mobile home parks and it is largely dependent on the seller deliverable list you get. So don't be afraid to ask for it, read everything. Don't be afraid to ask for more. If you read all this and you have more questions, Ask more questions. If you if there's something I'm missing from my list, ask for that too. Shoot me an email, ferd at the mhplawyer.com, and tell me about it. I'll put it on the list. I might even give you a royalty. No, I won't. That was not binding, by the way. But anyway, I'd love to know. Maybe I'll give you a shout-out or something. Maybe I'll let you be a guest on my podcast. You know how many listeners I have? I really don't know how many listeners I have either, but uh, it might be worth it to you. So anyway, thanks for listening. 
check me out on themobilehomeparklawyer.com and you can get a copy of this due diligence list. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.